Welcome to World of DAS, a show for data enthusiasts. I'm your host, Warren Hoffman, CEO of SafeGraph. For more conversations, videos, and transcripts, visit safegraph.com slash podcasts. Hello, data nerds. My guest today is Todd Satridati. Todd is the CEO of PipeDream. He's the former CEO of Brightroll, and he's also a general partner in Flex Capital. Todd, welcome to World of DAS. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Now we're going to try something a little different here than we normally do in World of DAS and that like we're actually going to dive into a specific topic. And today we're going to dive into founder compensation. I know it's something that you've been really interested in a while. I've been interested in a while. We've been interested together as a team for a long time. So we can we can we can talk a bit about it. Um, I, I'd be interested in your thoughts about how obviously there's lots of different ways people thought about compensating founders, but how do people what are some non-obvious things that people aren't thinking about? I think the most fundamental thing that people aren't thinking about is the fact that I think Founders Comp has been almost universally mismanaged over the last like 10 to 20 years. There's very few companies that I see where if you look over the arc of the company that people involved would say Founders Comp was handled well. Um, and, I, and I think that that it has these two like under underlying issues, which is the reason why it's almost universally mismanaged is on one hand, people feel like founders and CEOs are overcompensated in general. So there's this kind of bias towards either not addressing, not talking about, or just kind of like hiding under the rug, the issue. That's like the one major issue. And I think that the second major issue is that, you know, not all startups work out. And so as a result, you have situations where uh, people have dedicated five, 10 years of their lives and gave, you know, 100% effort and did everything right um, and were bearing kind of an unnecessary cost as a result of that process, in many cases being undercompensated. So to me, those are like the two fundamental issues that are often not, not discussed. There's a cash side of it, um, which is kind of what you get to keep, whether the company works out or not. And then there's a stock side, which kind of aligns like, some interests with the, with the other investors that only has value if the company has value in the end. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Now, one of the things that like we, we put out a piece on, on like go forward compensation, there's a sense where like once the initial founder grant is vested and, you know, depends on the founder, it could be four or five years um, that usually the, the initial founder grant is vested. The go forward comp of a founder CEO is often significantly less than the go forward comp of a replacement CEO. Like, how do you think boards or, or uh, should be actually looking at that different differential between the two? When companies work out great, upon a, like a retrospective, it's hard to argue that the CEO is like undercompensated at this trigger point where um, they're fully vested on their kind of founder's equity and their package is being determined later. Uh, I think in many cases you could argue that they were, but I don't think you're going to get a lot of like engagement from folks with these sort of high lot, high outcome situations. Uh, the, the Amazons of the world or something like Correct. that. Yeah. yeah. So I think it's actually much more interesting in the case where it's a moderate success or not a success. And, and in those situations, when we look back at them, I think there's, there's the toggle decision of, do I keep the existing founder CEO here or do I hire somebody new? And of course, when you look at hiring somebody new, they'll always be compensated more. 
uh, because they don't have that kind of founder's equity going in. I would actually make the argument that the founder in most cases should actually be paid significantly more than the person brought in because they're probably better for the company. They have multiple years of context. They have all the personal relationships. And, you know, I think there's a lot of examples that would show that outcomes are better with, with founder CEOs in that seat. But I think when you boil it all down to the real fundamental question is like, what is the problem that you're trying to solve, right? So if, if you're trying to be a mercenary founder CEO and you're trying to solve the problem of absolute maximum comp, then I think you start with that exact discussion. A new person would get paid more and then potentially I'm more valuable, I should get paid more than them. In my own situation, when I was running Brightroll, you know, I thought about there's this balance between being like the mercenary CEO and the servant CEO, right? My compensation is going to be highly visible inside the company. The CFO is going to know it. The controller is going to know it. The head of HR, many other HR employees are going to know it. So if the problem you're trying to solve is like be compensated enough to like do your job and not be stressed about, you know, working for a startup, but you want to set the tone and the culture of, you know, we're aligned with the outcome that's later on, then I think you want to be really sensitive to presenting this external comp package that a new CEO would get and arguing for it. Um, so again, I just go back to what is the problem you're trying to solve and and how do you best solve that for your company? I think most people don't know that um, different the different ways that founders may sacrifice or the different ways that they they try to do things that are they, in for what's in the best interest of the company. Um, usually even in a, a good outcome, like, so when you sold bright rolls, a really good outcome. When I sold, um, live ramp, it's a really good outcome. Usually even in those cases, the founder CEOs will, will take a bunch of their stock that has already vested and then they'll revest it, um, for some period of time. I think in your case, it was three years. In my case, it was two years where you revest this already vested, uh, stock. Um, and that's that's a generally really common thing for founders to do. Again, they don't like in some ways you don't have to do it, um, um, but but founders are often sacrificing their compensation for like the good of the overall outcome. Yeah, I mean in those situations it's always a little hard to de to determine like if you had not done it like the deal might not have happened. So it's sort Correct. of like yeah. So it's like I'm not sure it's like in the good graces of the graces of the founder that it's happening like it's a, it's like a mathematical calculation. What's the best thing for the individual? What's the best thing for the company? What's the best thing for all the employees? And you do the math. Let's say the founder left the company three months before and they had a, uh, had a different CEO or something, and then they sold the company. It's not like the, then the founder wouldn't have to revest or, yeah. um, or, you know, none of, usually almost none of the other employees have to revest. Certainly none of the investors or shareholders have to. So, so they have this kind of unique, situation that other people who also might be very important parts of the company don't don't have. Yeah, I think that's all true. Um, and those are all negotiated. I mean, sometimes acquirers do want other people to vest and sometimes that's a that's a negotiation. But I again, I, I sort of, I think the right philosophy is to approach all of these decisions generally with like, what's the, the best outcome for the company first? There are chances or opportunities where I think you do need to consider the actual individual's best interest as the founder CEO, but like it's such a unique seat that has so much impact on the rest of the company that I'm just very concerned if somebody starts with the position of like, what's best for me? I'm approaching this as a mercenary. And it's it, the question is, do other people want to work in that environment anyways? Yeah. And there are a few high profile cases of certain companies where 
it does seem like the founder CEO was much more of a mercenary or much more trying to self-deal and not, not being more of a servant CEO. Um, it's, I think probably the, the vast majority of cases, the founders, the, the servant CEO, but there are some high profile cases where they're not. And that, that obviously clouds um, the way we look at these things. Yeah, I mean, one of my sort of high level philosophies on CEO comp is it's almost like the Warren Buffett inheritance uh, quote, where I think like the perfect comp for a CEO is enough comp so that they feel like they can do anything with the company, like fulfill its greatest potential, but they don't feel like they're so well compensated that they like can do nothing or or the outcome of the company is is not the most important metric. And that's a hard balance, right? It does depend on the existing situation of the CEO. Do they have any money at all? Or are they, you know, are they starting a family? Like what's their, that's the operating cost of their lives. But I, but like that balance of like, cause there are a lot of sort of suboptimal outcomes that I think have occurred because either the board or the CEO themselves, founder CEO themselves thought that the right thing to do was massively undercompensate the founder. And as a result, the founder sells the company too early or doesn't aggressively pursue the biggest opportunities in front of them. So it's like that right balance can actually unlock much bigger opportunities for the company. So I think in the end, it's actually in the best interest of all involved to solve this problem um, and not just sweep it under the rug. It's a weird thing because the founder CEO is, is the only employee with, with very little leverage. They're not going to leave the company. Um, it, would, it would be really bad. And, and everyone knows it. And so usually the way employees have leverage in some, in, in some sort of is this, there is some implicit threat always when you're, when you're compensating somebody that they can go somewhere else. Um, and so you're, you're constantly make, uh, making sure you're, you're trying to give them a high enough compensation where if they're going to go somewhere else, they were going to go because of non-comp reasons, right? Um, and so you're 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 always making sure that your 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 best employees are not going to go somewhere else. Whereas with the founder CEO, the board already knows they're not going anywhere, and so it's a it's a harder leverage situation for them when they're when they're thinking about it. I feel actually that founder CEOs might have more leverage than they generally realize. And now, of course, I agree that in most cases they won't leave, but the, the risk to the company if they leave is so great that like if you were ever forced to to sort of play that card or bring that leverage to bear, I do think you have tremendous leverage. But, well, I would, but then, of course, if your whole net worth is tied up in your own stock, unless you're a completely irrational person, you're probably not going to tank your own stock, right? Yeah, but but my point is that I would I would almost never advise somebody to ever tap into that leverage. And I think that the, the better leverage is, is to have that conversation and say, listen, I spend 10 to 20% of my time concerned that I'm not going to have enough money to send my kid to college or it's creating problems within my household. And this is something that's like on my mind all the time. Like it's actually creating, I've seen in some cases, like it's the source of like mental health challenges of founders and CEOs. Like the right leverage is I am not doing my best work and this company is not, you know, performing as well as it could because of this issue. So to me, again, it's not that's not like in the mercenary category. That's in the greater good category. It's like, let's get this issue off the table so that we're all focused on making this company successful. And I think that if you're able to have that kind of honest dialogue with your board, and you know, there's some vulnerability there, there's some transparency there. I do think in most cases, um, you'll come to a better place 
than trying to like use some other form of leverage. Like I'm going to be passive aggressive, or I'm not going to share the board materials early enough, or, you know, like all these like other behaviors that emerge that are completely destructive to, to like culture is just to address the issue head on and, and, and try to solve it. If you're advising a CEO about how to interact with their board, how would you, how would you, how would you advise them to, to bring it up in a tactful way? So, I mean, I, I guess my first piece of advice is like, you know, th- these are hopefully on your board, these are professional investors, they're grownups, they're capable of having like a tough conversation about money. Now, most people are not capable of having tough conversations about money. And I would say probably many board members are not as good as they think they are. But I think you have to approach it from the beginning. Like, this is a topic that is important, that needs to be discussed, that we need to be able to have an like unemotional fact-based conversation about and start there. Now, if if things go off the rails and you can't have that kind of conversation, then, then it's different advice. But I think start with you know the facts. And the truth is, if any CEO went to their board and said, I want you to do an independent review of my compensation versus other founder CEOs. That will always end up with a better comp package for the founder CEO. So it's almost like you can always defer to the facts, right? Which is like some third party process. But again, I don't, I don't go there or recommend going there in the beginning. I start out with, here's my situation. Here's my needs. I, this is where I feel I'm being compensated versus where I, I should be compensated and having that conversation. By the way, you'll learn so much about you know, how your, v, your performance is being viewed, what the incentives are of people. Look, you'll learn so much by having that open, vulnerable dialogue first. And then I think other tactics emerge based on the response that you get. We've been on some boards together. And when I was on the Brayroll board, uh, which is company you ran, um, I felt like my number one um, value to the board was, was trying to convince them to pay you more. Um, and, uh, is there a way of like, okay, understanding, okay, there's different, there's maybe an independent more board member that may have a different thing, or, and, and I could talk to them when we went into closed session and, a and a more board member to board member way, or is there some other kind of like tactics you think one can use to think it through or have an intermediary or et cetera? I think that the, the reality is that the, the venture capitalists on the board are often the wrong person to be driving this conversation. They really do. Um, have some conflicting incentives. Now you could argue in aggregate, the greater good is is a greater equity outcome for everyone, but there are definitely situations where it feels like equity is going from the company to the founder and the VCs in some cases feel like that's going from their pocket to a founder's pocket. You know, an independent board member, I think is much more naturally biased towards being kind of like rational and fair on this and, and sort of weighing that balance of, what's enough, but not too much. And yeah. so I think if anything, if you could have an independent board member, you know, sort of have those conversations up front with them, have them be your, I don't want to say your champion, because it's not about like optimizing yeah, for it's doing founder, what's best for the company. Yeah, yeah. Play the role of independence. Um, and also I think they have a much more desire to like address the issue head on right now. I see a lot of situations where this gets brought up kind of in a doesn't need to be addressed immediately way. And I think the, investors in general, if they feel like it doesn't need to be solved immediately, the easiest answer is just take it down the road. You know, we'll solve it at the next board meeting or the next year. And if this is a real issue, I think an independent board member can, can be that catalyst. This is important, needs to be addressed now. Let's let's sort of have that conversation. One issue that concerns me, and again, I always go to this, a lot of this is about behavior to me. It's not always about the math, 
right? And so the behavior that compensation drives is always a topic that I think is is like the subtopic, which is yep. as important. And I think one of the biggest differences of, of Silicon Valley startups and software startups today versus even like say five or 10 years ago is that a lot of um, early employees, founders included, are essentially being compensated for potential versus performance. Um, and you can make this argument is true all the way from like, professional sports all the way down to like a new, you know, college grad starting a software company in Silicon Valley, which is that people, you know, I, five, 10 years ago, no one would ever sell secondary in a series A financing. It just would never yeah. happen. Yeah. Even in a would, series B or C. Often. Yeah. The board would never be supportive of it. It would frankly be considered like a, a negative signal for the company. And what's happened now is there's so much capital chasing these software companies that many early employees and founders have the opportunity to actually sell shares in series A and series B financing, which is frankly compensating them before the company has actually delivered on the metrics. And so to me, this isn't a criticism of the individuals. It's a question of behavior. Like if you're getting significant economic benefit, like before you've built something of real value, my question is always like, well, what behavior is that going to create? Like when things come easy, I just think, frank, frankly, people aren't going to work as hard as they would have in a scenario where that wasn't available to them. I would say on LiveRamp, I probably sold the company too early. Not probably, definitely sold the company too early. And you know, if I had done a secondary, I probably wouldn't have sold the company and therefore could have realized more potential for the, for the company long-term. Um, but because I had an opportunity to take off the table and take care of my family and not have to worry about different things, my family ended up selling the company. Uh, and I can imagine a lot of these founders are going through something similar where like they could almost be more aligned with the VCs and go for the bigger outcome if they were able to take, and maybe not just the founders, but also some of the early employees as well, um, able to take some, some small percentage of their equity off the table. Yeah, I mean, I sort of go back to my comment about this this balance of enough to do anything, but not enough to do nothing. Like, absolutely. I mean, I could. I, there are dozens of cases where I've seen founders and founding teams sell some equity, and then it puts them in the in the path of optimizing for the greatest economic outcome for all involved, and that's a great place to be. My own story, um, transparently, is I sold secondary in my company, Brightroll, at around roughly a seventy five million dollar valuation. And that was because I just had a child and I wanted to make sure that like, no matter what happens for the company, like I'm not going to like lose my the place that I live and I'm going to be able to send my kids to college. And frankly, I felt like what I had built over the first five years was, you know, I had received something so that I could really just focus on the bigger outcome for the next five years. And I, I'm hundred percent supportive of that. And I've seen that uh, many, many times again, but I want to give the spectrum right for your listeners, which is like, there are companies that founders are selling secondary in the series A of their company before the product is even launched, right? Well, we are in kind of a crazy time right now. Yeah. So that feels like we're too far on the other side of the spectrum. Again, I'm not like judge and jury, but I, I just feel there's this balance, right? Of like enough, but not too much. And every company and individual is different, but my gut is series A secondary pre-launch is too much too early and will only have negative behavioral impacts. Um, but not doing anything and having a entrepreneur, maybe like the story you shared where, you know, you feel like you sold too early because you hadn't received some economics from the business. That's also a fail, right? So 
somewhere in the middle. No, let, let's talk about a, a kind of a, a weird case scenario, which is these second time founders. They had a good outcome their first time. They're, they're founding a company second time. You and I are literally going through this right now. You with Pipe Dream, with me with SafeGraph. Um, we had a great, uh, or at least a good outcome the first time. We can take care of our family. We um, were, were, we actually took a few million dollars and, and were the initial investors in our own our own new company. Um, a lot of the second time founders, I think both you and I are taking a zero salary um, here, right? A zero dollar salary. How, how should these like, and again, these are rare cases, but how should they be thinking about these businesses? Because they, they tend to have, because they're investing in their businesses, they'll tend to have like, let's say greater ownership than, than a first time founder. They also don't need the money in terms of cash, right? So they don't, there's no reason for them to take a salary or to, to, to reward them with some sort of salary or bonus structure or something. So how should they be thinking about things? Yeah, I mean, I, I just share how I thought about things as, as the probably the advice I would give others, which is I started the process with what is the structure that has the highest likelihood of creating a great outcome? And so, you know, part of the reason why I invested in the company when we launched the company was I didn't want any ex unnecessary external pressure or timeline on what we were building. I wanted to give, you know, myself and the team enough sort of breathing room to make sure that we were working on the right thing and addressing the problem in the, in the right way. Um, and I would say the same thing about, um, you know, CEO, founder, salaried comp for multiple time founders. Like, I think more money in the bank for the company is a net positive for the company's ability to be successful. So it's, it's an absolute no-brainer decision. Um, now, I will mention that one of the perverse dynamics that this creates is if you have uh, you know, founder CEOs who are self-funding businesses, who are also determining like the comp structure for the org, like you end up with a situation where you can, again, tilt that, that, that sort of pendulum too far. I think you can create structures that are far too CEO founder friendly and you create an environment where people wouldn't want to work there and they don't feel like there's fairness and equity. And so uh, in my own process, I, I sort of found a, a venture capitalist thought partner who has, I was like, you're not investing in this round, but I want you to play that role as if you are a VC investing in this role. And I literally bounced all my structure and ideas off him because I knew at some point we were going to go out to VC and I didn't want to have some structure that when I then later presented it, someone looks like, wow, there's a lot of like weirdness and self-dealing and favorable structures here. Now in my story, long story short, I ended up raising money from that individual later because it was someone I had worked with. Um, but I, I really benefited from having that like counterpoint in the room, even if they weren't economically involved at the formation. Let's say we're, we're in this weird case where we've got a founder, they've been in the business for, founder CEO, they've been in the business for a while. Um, maybe they, let's say post five years, they've been in the business for a while. They want to, they want to be motivated to go forward. Is there, is there some sort of way with like deferred compensation or, um, um, out of the money options or some other type of thing where the founder could be more aligned with the eventual outcome of the company. So it's still a way of like giving them extra carrots. They like to know that they're working for something, give them extra, give them extra carrots, but you know, align them more. And, and Elon Musk is kind of famous for this at Tesla. So, you know, he said, okay, if the valuation reached these different plateaus, then he, he'll get these big compensation packages, but only if it reaches those plateaus. Um, is there some sort of like way of getting creative to align all the interests? 
I mean, I think there's, there's lots of ways to, to align those interests. And I think, um, I mean, I think Elon should get a lot of credit for kind of the most high profile example of this, but you know, most boards are willing to pay for performance and pay significant amounts for performance. And so creating any structure where, you know, either ownership or compensation increases when you have significant milestones of performance is a much easier negotiation and conversation, I think, to have for most CEO founders and most boards. So any, you know, any of those structures, I think, is favorable for alignment of incentives. Everyone's focused on the biggest outcome possible. They they take out any of the kind of odd, you know, discussions around paying for, you know, potential or maybe over, you know, the sort of like existing versus a hired gun CEO it takes those issues off the table. Um, and I think if you're in the seat of the founder CEO and you're confident in your business, the actual economic outcomes will be far greater, which is exactly why Elon's of the world are choosing that package. Uh, because when you do outperform, you know, you'll just never be able to negotiate any other package that aggressive unless it was tied to some outperformance. So I truly think it is a win-win-win. Um, I just, you know, the the sort of devil's advocate is like, well, I don't even know it's devil's advocate, but there's going to be some conversations when some of these performance packages kick in where people are astounded by the amount of economics. Well, certainly there has been with the in the Tesla use case, yeah. right, um, where people were at, at the time, uh, maybe people are, oh, that's never going to happen because there was uh, such a high valuation to get the hurdle to kick in. Uh, but then I think when it kicked in, I think there were there were people who were concerned, which, which makes sense. I mean, any we're talking about a high class problem in general. So we should take a step back. It's not like these founders are people who are generally taking advantage of. A lot of these founders are are multimillionaires, sometimes even, you know, even richer than that. This is a uh, a very, very high class problem that we're that we're trying and we're really trying to address things really around like the margins on this. Yeah. I mean, one comment I make though is that it is a high class problem when it works. And and everyone likes to talk about the cases when it works. But on a percentage basis, I would make the argument the majority of founder CEO comp issues are not in cases where the company works, right? I mean, the majority of startups fail. The majority of founder CEOs are in companies that fail. And so the most like punitive, you know, bad outcomes occur when startups fail. And, um, you know, sort of like that's why in general people gloss over this as a problem because they, they point to the success outcomes and say, those people are well compensated or overcompensated. We shouldn't even talk about this. But but actually, I'm more concerned about the other cases, right? The people who really need to be focused on this issue, of course, you don't know it when you're in it, but are the people who are not going to have the great outcome. Uh, and that's where it's the most you know, painful. There is kind of a scenario where there's like, okay, there's a start where they completely fails like a zero X kind of return or something like that. A lot of startups are, I'd say in the like, 2x return. It didn't fail. It was actually a. Uh, uh, it made some money for the investors. Even there, you could see a lot of like on a, you know the, the founder may come out of it unaligned and and or they may felt like they worked too hard for it or they may have had to done like certain sacrifices or other types of things as well. You can make the simple math, which is, was the majority of your compensation as a founder CEO your salary or your equity? Yeah, it's almost always the equity. Yeah, yeah. On the success outcomes, but I would guess on the sub two x outcomes, there's more of a blend. Yep. And there's going to be some tipping point where salary became much more significant. And in, I would argue, in almost 100 percent of those situations, 
that the salary comp decision made for the CEO is something that the individual wishes they could have revisited or done differently. And those are the ones that are on a percentage basis, probably the greatest. A non-founder CEO that got hired into the job would have uh, had a market rate for that competition. Interesting. Uh, This has been super interesting. Are there any other things that you think like we should, that people aren't addressing on things like compensation? One of my like mantras these days is like, is just about mental health of, you know, people in very, very high stress, you know, jobs in general. And I, I, I know multiple people that were sort of unable to do their job at their full potential because they had compensation related challenges in their household. And the general situation is there's an individual who starts a company who I think frankly does everything right. They align their compensation with the greater good of the company. So they underpay themselves. And instead of the company taking, you know, two years, like they thought, you know, maybe they're seven or eight years in and they've never really addressed their personal situation. And it feels to them like they're always, you know, a quarter or it's six months or a year from something great happening for the company. And they basically create this scenario where uh, they've undercompensated for themselves for the long, long time. And it starts to add significant stress to their lives and their family. And maybe they start having kids and other things start happening. And those situations to me that like was a, seemed like a six month to one year problem that ended up being like a five to 10 year problem and are unaddressed are actually the situations I think are most critical for these, these conversations to sort of be surfaced and to be had. And unfortunately, I think it is that individual's sort of role and responsibility to bring it up because I do not believe other people will bring it up. It's, it's not going to come from the board because these individuals are generally superstars at hiding the fact that they're under massive stress. I don't know how to address that beyond saying that I believe there is a sort of borderline crisis happening in the, in the non-success cases that is unaddressed in Silicon Valley. And these things take a long time. And during that time, people's life situation change. If you think of both Brightwell and um, and LiveRamp, we, we were doing this for, for those who are listening. We were kind of doing this together at the exact same time. We started the companies in 2006. We both sold the companies in 2014, eight years later. So we're going through the journey at almost exactly the same time. Like during that time, like we both had two kids during that time, right? And so, you know, you we went from zero kids to two kids and, you know, we had different, you know, we had, we had a lot of different situations change and you can imagine, I mean, eight years is a very long time, right? Um, and, you know, it's, it's, especially if you're starting a company like in your twenties and early thirties or something like that, like it's a pretty big percentage of your adult life where you're in this company. And, and sometimes it can be a lot longer than eight years. So you can see these things change and you're right. So even the issues that may have not been affecting you in year two or year three by year seven, eight, nine could actually be coming more into the forefront. Absolutely. I mean, it's the, it is not uncommon. In fact, it's probably the norm for these things to take much longer than you expect. And I would say most CEO founders are not good at projecting what their life will be like in 10 years right? A lot of people are, you know, get married, they have kids, their parents are aging, they now own house in some area where the real estate market has changed dramatically in 10 years, like a lot can change in a decade. Um, And so it just makes the stresses on that individual. And again, I think the founding team, you know, in many cases, all of them just significantly greater over that period of time. 
Okay, this has been awesome. Um, before we leave, I just got two personal questions for you. So the first okay. one is you're one of the best people I know at understanding the future of your family and understanding the future of your kids and stuff. What advice would you give to the rest of us meal mortals about how to, how to do that? Uh, my number one piece of advice is probably marry a psychologist, you know? Um, so that, that has greatly impacted my ability to, to think about my kids and my family over time. Um, that's my number one piece of advice. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, that that's a, that's fair. Okay. And and Rebecca is an amazing wife, an amazing partner. Um, all right. Last last question we ask all of our guests: If you could go back in time um, and give advice to your younger self, Todd, who's twenty two, what advice would you give yourself? I, I'd say my number one piece of advice would be that the imposter syndrome of like feeling that you know you're not good enough is not a requirement in order to uh, be productive and be successful. I, I, it has been a major driver in my life and it was when I was younger, but I've, as I've aged, I think I've realized that it was not required. I probably fed off it at times, but I, but I think that the, there is this belief that if it ever went away, that you know, everything would fall apart. And I think that's just frankly not true. Um, so there's a bit of psychology there, but I think you're, you are good enough but still be hungry uh, is what I would tell myself. There is a little bit of imposter syndrome for people that don't have imposter syndrome. I, I definitely have. I've always had imposter syndrome. So <laughs> you're a very confident person and you, you believe in yourself and, it, you know, et, et, et cetera. Like you still feel like you're out of your depth. Like you're a great CEO, you're an accomplished CEO. For me personally, like fear of failure and feeling you're not good enough has always, you know, driven or I had thought was always the driver of my motivation. And, um, you know, I think people with imposter syndrome are generally very good at hiding it. All right. Awesome. This has been, this has been really great. Thank you, Todd. For those who are listening, I, I, I follow Todd on Twitter. He's T O D at T O D, which is one of the best handles in history. Um, <laughs> to get a, a, a three-letter handle. Um, so I highly recommend that you do that. Th Todd, thank you for being with us on World of DAS. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, consider rating this podcast and leaving a review. For more World of DAS, and DAS is D-A-A-S, you can subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or anywhere you get your podcasts. And also check out YouTube for videos. You can find me at Twitter at at Oren, that's A-U-R-E-N, Oren, and we'd love to hear from you. World of DAS is brought to you by SafeGraph.